throughout Advent, we're going to have a short teaching series that we're simply calling Songs for a Weary Soul. As I mentioned last week, I think weary is the word that describes so many of us in so many ways, um, because this has gone on. We were able to make it through the first wave and sort of breathe a sigh of relief and think, okay, maybe we're on the way back, and now the second wave comes, and we just a lot of times feel weighed down and troubled. And as Dean mentioned, so many people just struggling with, with the wellness of the mind. And I want to talk about wellness in our souls as we look at four songs in the New Testament that have to do with giving rest to the weary soul or um, giving relief to the weary soul. We're going to begin with what's called the Benedictus. And if you grew up in a um, more liturgical setting, you, you may remember that. You may have remembered um, after the New Testament readings that the Benedictus was often said together. Um, it's also called the canticle, and I'll leave it to you to figure out what a canticle is. I've talked about songs and or psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, so what are we going to do, add another layer to that? No, not really. But we are going to look at these four songs in the New Testament. They're all around the nativity of Christ. And I think that they come closest to this idea of spiritual songs. Because they're not just songs that are lovely hymns um, full of truths about God and us. They're not even just songs of extolling God, worshiping him, acknowledging him. In, in many ways, they seem to have come from the Spirit himself. They seem to have been uttered as songs um, or poems th that have been prompted by the Holy Spirit working in people's hearts and lives. So the first one is what we call the Benedictus. The, the text of that uh, particular song is found in Luke chapter 1. But I want to take you back to Jerusalem and try to get a setting into which we understand this song. Jerusalem was a vibrant city. And um, much at the center of all of its vibrancy was the temple. The temple was an imposing set of buildings. And it stood up, up literally in, into the center of Jerusalem. And when people went to the temple, they would talk about going up to the temple because it was very much a journey of traveling up to get to the place where they could worship God. The temple in the time of Jesus was actually Herod's temple. That's what we call it because Herod um, brought about incredible renovations. So Solomon's temple was very small, relatively speaking, compared to Herod's temple. And you may remember, even in some of the dialogues between Jesus and the disciples and others, they remarked on how marvelous this building was, how great the stones were that were building the temple of Jerusalem. And as a bit of a hive in the center of Jerusalem, the bees were the priests of the temple. Um, there were many, many, many priests, hundreds, maybe thousands of priests whose job had to do with taking care of the temple and all that went on in the temple. 
And we're going to find one of them this morning, and I want you to be introduced to him. He, he's maybe the forgotten character of the nativity story. But I want you to remember with me and maybe imagine an old man. Now, I say that very carefully because the commentators told me that he was between 60 and 70. But the Bible calls him an old man. So there you go. There's the record. He's an old man. And I want to talk about him as a weary old man because I can't imagine that he's anything but weary. Let's imagine we can go to the temple and we can watch what goes on and we're going to climb up the stairs, climb up the steps, the many, many sets of steps to the temple. Here's a priest, one of the many hundreds or thousands who are employed in the duties of the temple. And he wearily climbs the first set of steps as he enters into the, the gorgeous, white, shining, glistening buildings of the temple. Um, as he climbs up, he has to work his way through throngs and throngs of people because the temple courts are crowded. They always are crowded. And as this priest in his priestly garb um, and his turban, as he makes his way wearily up the steps, he picks his way through the crowd of people and he goes on to another set of steps and he makes his way all the way up those steps. Maybe he needs to take a breath halfway up, but he finally gets up into the next big plateau of the temple and soon he's into an area of the temple that most everyone else can only look at. There are pillars, so they're able to look in sort of through the pillars to see the activity of this main part for, for their use and view of the temple. And our priest sees the altar that's there. It's huge and imposing. It is meters and meters square. And it, as well, has a whole step set of steps that would allow the appropriate priest to go and offer on the altar of burnt offering. It was the focal point, really, for all of the Jews of Jerusalem. And in many ways, it was the focal point of all of the activities around the temple. And so this priest, as he made his way slowly through the crowds and then walked up to and probably gazed at the altar, he saw that the altar was aflame as it properly was day by day. And but he walked past the altar. He had, he had more to do. He, he went farther than most anyone could go. And when he came to another set of steps, he ascended those steps, and he went behind a partition. You could sort of see into what was behind the partition, again, through the pillars. But our priest, along with two others, went into this holy place. And it was almost into the deep recesses of the temple buildings and all of its facades. And as he went into this, this holy place, this special place reserved only that priests could go into, uh, he, he would see certain things that were there. In fact, there were only three 
large articles of furniture. To his left, he could see the menorah. The menorah, which we are able to remember as the, the seven-branched candlestick, and you've probably seen versions of that. The menorah was lit every day. It's lit all the time in the holy place of the temple. It was huge. Again, it was taller still than the priest, as he noticed it. It was wider still than the priest. And it gave light into that whole area. Um, it's described in the Old Testament as being made of gold. And there are little cups at each of the seven branches uh, that resemble olive blossoms. And uh, into, into those little cups, uh, the priests would, would provide olive oil to light this holy area of, of the temple. And every night and every day, they would make sure that that candle light, that menorah, was lit. And so our priest, the weary man, was uh, slowing down as he surveyed the various things that were around him. And first of all, it was to his left, this menorah, this huge menorah. As he looked all the way to the other side, he saw a table of showbread. And again, it was larger than life. It was a table that was regularly supplied by some of the priests in the city of Jerusalem. And there were 12 piles of cakes, 12 piles of unleavened bread. They were supplied um, before every Sabbath came along, every time that the Jewish people rested for the week. There was fresh bread. And that bread um, never seemed to, to go stale, never seemed um, to be unattended because the table of showbread, which again has, has history way, way back for thousands of years. And so our weary priest sees the table of showbread, but he's not there either for the menorah or the table of showbread. He's there. Uh, for the altar of incense. And the two who have come with him have the first responsibility. They need to uh, remove from the altar of incense the, the now um, sort of subdued coals that were there from the day before. And one of them would remove those and would go out from the holy place and would go out into the larger area that they had gone through and uh, he would dispense with the old coals and his partner would collect some new coals from the altar the altar of burnt offering the altar that was at the center of the vista of the thousands of Jews who were gathered there as they properly should because it was a time of prayer and the one who did not put the old embers there but collected new burning embers would carry those burning embers into the holy place and would place them in, into the bowl of the altar of incense. The altar of incense was made of pure gold. Again, it was a large, large piece of furniture. Zacharias was the priest and we only know about him now in retrospect. He has lived out 
you know, these scores and scores of years, faithfully serving as a priest in the city of Jerusalem in the temple. And his job is actually the most important job of that day. More important than anyone who tended to the menorah or to the showbread, even than the two priests who came to make sure that there was new fire on the altar of incense. Only once in a priest's lifetime was he ever likely to get to have the opportunity of offering the incense offering. There were so many priests, and by lot, they were chosen. And it inevitably turned out that it was only once, and maybe not ever, in a priest's life that they got to serve at the altar of incense. The priest, as he surveyed this altar of incense and with its, its burning, flaming embers, would know the light was there, would know the bread was there, and his gaze might have been taken up to the veil as he looked and was not ever able to go further than the veil. Only the, the high priest once a year could ever go in through the curtain. And the curtain was huge. It was several times the height of the priest, the height of Zacharias. And it was beautiful. It was woven. It was lovely. It was colorful. And it protected everything else inside it from the rest of the activity of the temple. It was the holy of holies inside. And I'm sure Zacharias gazed at that veil, at that curtain. Before he would have gone around behind the altar of incense to offer the incense. All of the people who were in the yard outside were, were gazing inside for what would happen next because the great service that the priest would, would offer in offering the incense on the altar was to pray for the people. And so they would have gathered to pray. They would have been murmuring their prayers, probably, you know, bobbing their prayers. But all of their eyes would have been focused in, many of them, I'm sure, wondering about that super holy place, the holy of holies, and what was back in there, because their whole tradition was that that was where God himself was. And the symbolism of every part of the temple was incredibly important. The altar of burnt offering, which was the heart, as I say, of, of their celebration, was about the sin that the people knew was their problem. And they knew that only by the offering of the burnt offerings on the altar of burnt offering could their sins be covered over, could their sins be atoned. And the meaning of it all is farther back into the Holy of Holies. But the, the instructive spot and moment was that their sins were covered day by day by day by day. And the point of taking from the altar of burnt offering into the altar of incense was that when the incense was placed on the burning embers from 
the altar of burnt offering. They were thought to be the prayers of God's people. They could only be offered after the burnt offerings had been satisfied. And they were made the incense of various spices and various colors. It said that only one family of the priesthood really knew what was all together in, in the incense. But when the priest who then had come around behind um, facing back out to the people, when he put the incense on the burnt offering, it would, it would have wafted high, all the way higher than the temple itself in the temple proper. And the people would know that the altar of burnt offering was caring for their sins, or what it meant was caring for their sins. And they were then worshiping God. They were praying to God only on the basis of what had happened on the altar of the burnt offering and on the golden altar, the golden altar of incense. The incense would waft. The priest, now all by himself, the others having discharged their duties, the priest would then raise his arms and would pray from the altar of incense for the people. He would pray the blessing on the people for which they had gathered and which they were waiting. Our priest was shocked by what happened while he was in there. Our priest is Zacharias. His wife is Elizabeth. They're both of the Aaronic line. They're both priestly people. Um, they're faithful people. They're good people. They've done their duty for years over and over and over again. But they're weary. They're weary, first of all, because they're getting old. They're also weary because they have no children. And they have prayed and prayed and prayed. And yet, they have no children. They have no offspring. And they're in the priestly family. So, if they don't have offspring, to that degree, the priestly family loses its continuity. And so Zacharias was a man, I'm sure, of a heavy heart, of a, of a weary heart. He was weary of the duties of the priesthood that he undertook every single day. He was weary of waiting and waiting and waiting for the promised Messiah because his priestly duties had him rehearse um, day by day by day the expectation of the one that would set them free from Rome. They were a people who were tyrannized. They were people who were controlled. They were, were people who were only even allowed into the temple confines, you know, by the concession of the Roman Empire. Uh, and this terrible conflict going on all the time. Elizabeth was just as weary as Zacharias. But as he was preparing to make the incense offering, all of a sudden, there was an angel. Now, if he thought this was going to be the highest day of his life, everything is about to change. The angel says, don't be afraid. Because every time you see an angel, I think the proper thing is to be afraid. 
the angel said, I'm Gabriel from the presence of God. And I'm here with some special news for you. Now, the text tells us that by this time, the people were getting impatient. They're wondering, why is Zacharias not coming back out? Why has, has he not offered this great priestly prayer? Why has he not given us the blessing? Why, why can't we go on with the activities of our day? In the meantime, between the menorah and the Holy of Holies stands this one. And he says, don't be afraid. God has heard your prayers. What prayers? <laughs> I'm sure maybe there was a glimmer of hope in Zacharias's mind and heart where he thought, are prayers for a child? No, couldn't be that. We're old. We're old, it can't be that. And Gabriel said, the Lord has heard your prayers. He has heard your requests. And your wife, Elizabeth, is going to conceive a son by you. We are old. How could this possibly be true? I'm old. My wife's old. How can we conceive a child when we're old? Now, because he wouldn't believe, Gabriel made him speechless. God, I don't think I'd believe either, would you, Annabeth? Hope. Hope would go in a different direction if it was us. Gabriel said, you're, you're going to be speechless because of this. And Gabriel told him his name. His name is John. If Gabriel remembered, um, there was to be someone who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. There was something about Bethlehem and Jerusalem and the throne of David and, and all of that. It was all mixed together in his head. Um, but the angel said, you'll, you'll be speechless, but your wife will bear a son. His name will be John. He was speechless. And as he came out of the holy place, the people said, something has happened. He must have had a vision. He couldn't, he couldn't talk to them. He couldn't utter anything. And they said, he must have seen a vision. He had seen a vision. But it's a vision in this very, very holy place where God sent an angel to say, here's how the drama will begin. And here's how it will, will carry on. Zacharias was a weary old man. I bet he kind of ran down the steps on his way home. And when he got to his wife, Elizabeth, and she said, how was your day, honey? And he said, I can't talk. <laughs> Somehow or other, he, he communicated with her what the child's name would be. Because she knows later on, we'll find out that she knows. But what a day. And what hope there is for a weary soul all characterized in this person of, of Zacharias I want to go to the, the Benedictus it's called the canticle of 
Zechariah sometimes. And it's a lovely long two-piece canticle or um, sonnet or song or hymn or psalm, whatever you'd like to call it. it it's given not immediately following what happened when the angel appeared to Zechariah. It's when John is born, nine months later. For the whole nine months, Zacharias was speechless, was not able to utter a word. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, those who had gathered for this great typical celebration said, well, uh, are you calling him Zacharias? And then there was a hush. Elizabeth said no. And Zacharias said, no, his name will be John. And all of a sudden, his tongue was loosened. You're not going to call him Zacharias after his father, as normally would be done. He, he'll be called John. And then Zacharias bursts out with this Benedictus, with this beautiful canticle. First of all, it, it just revels in what God has done. And then he turns his attention to the baby. And he speaks prophetically to the baby. A little piece of it, because it's a longer passage. A little piece says, To give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And you, he says to John, you will be. And he prophesies over who this child will be. You've already seen in one of the quotes a little piece of this passage, which has this beautiful language about the sunrise from on high visiting us to shine upon those who sit in darkness. We're sitting in darkness of a sort. Our world has sat in darknesses like this before. But our world sits still in a grim darkness. The work of the priests day after day was wearisome. To have to bring a fresh offering and fresh light and fresh bread and fresh ministry day after day after day, seeing no fulfillment was wearying to their souls. But into the middle of all of this, God spoke to Zacharias and said, here's the beginning of a marvelous, marvelous drama. Zacharias was, first of all, overjoyed. It maybe tempered his weariness by the opportunity this one time in his life to offer the incense offering. Now he's given this astonishing news and now, nine months later, it's proven to be true. And God has answered their prayers. He gives them a son. They've been praying their whole lives long. Praying weary prayers. Maybe they said to, to each other, should we keep on asking? Should we keep on praying? It's too late now, isn't it? Let's just grin and bear it. And yet God had heard their prayers. What do you do when you are a person with a weary soul? 
I think what we learn from um, Zechariah is is actually caught up in two lines of a Christmas carol that, that we sing, O Holy Night. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Those are fairly biblical lines, aren't they? A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. Weary Zacharias and weary Elizabeth rejoice in the gift of a son. Weary Zacharias and weary Elizabeth rejoice in the promise of an advent of the Messiah. They rejoice in the possibility of the complete forgiveness of sins. As I think about this, I think as we try to hold on through our weariness, what do we say to one another? What, what, what counsel do we have from Scripture about how to get from here even until the vaccine comes? Just as practical as that. And what is there? What, what in this canticle of Zacharias, how is this a song for the weary? Three simple things that, that I glean from all of this. First of all, I think we need to hold on to what we know. Elizabeth and Zacharias faithfully carried on doing what they had always done. Zacharias carried out his priestly duties. He held on to what he knew. And he kept on doing what he knew he was supposed to be doing. I, I think a lot of us are just kind of thinking about giving up in one way or another. Maybe feeling like Zechariah and Elizabeth saying, what's the point in praying still? We're, we're in our 60s. What's the point in carrying on with the things that you've prayed for for years and years and years and you've not seen the answer? And in the darkness of a pandemic, it, it even gets darker, doesn't it? The, the darkness is thicker when those things that even before this have, have weighed on you. You've prayed for them and waited for them and waited for them and now this, it, it just... It can feel as though there's no point any longer. And, and Zacharias may have felt that, but he held on to what he knew. He held on to the, the glorious truth of, of atonement, the glorious truth of the burnt offering, the glorious truth of worshiping God by praying from the power of the burnt offering altar of guiding the people into their daily prayers, their daily rituals, expecting and expecting and expecting. They kept on doing what they had been doing faithfully. Even church and gathering, there's a whole lot of disquiet around as people are wondering, what's the point in church any longer? And what's church going to look like any longer? And how are we doing and when are we going to see one another and um, what will it be like 
and we may just feel dampened, I would encourage you to hold on to what you know. Secondly, I think we need to prepare for what's new. Um, into that shocking day that Zechariah already hoped would be a really special one for him, that maybe he'd be able to say on, on that day, I got to make the incense offering. Um, the angel said to him, okay, a new thing is going to happen. And you need to be ready for it. You're going to have a son. And his name is John. And he's going to be the one through whom there will be an incredible announcement about the coming of Messiah. I think in the middle of this darkness, um, there's also the need for us to prepare for what's new. What is the new normal for Elizabeth and Zacharias? You know, without dumbing down their powerful story, they'd have a child in their 60s, a child to look after. It's going to be all different for them. All of their routines would be changed. And when we learn about John, it's a weird story. Because we're told that he lived in the desert for his whole childhood, all, all the way up till the time that his cousin came along. Zacharias and Elizabeth had, had to figure out what this was, who this was, how they were supposed to manage being the parents of such a, a, a gift from God. Um, and the lovely thing is that as we prepare for what's new, it will be consistent with what has been true in our lives. Do we get that? That what Zechariah and Elizabeth came to understand had an absolute continuity with what they were hoping for. Praying for a child, praying for the Messiah. Through all of this, God has not changed anything about his character. He's not changed anything about the terms of our relationship. It's not game over with him, or it's not, oh, we have to think of a different way to go about things. Everything that God has been, he's, he's still the same one, that Jesus is the one who's the same yesterday and today and forever. And the third thing, I think, out of that is simply to count on God's tender mercy and faithfulness. I think that's what we were seeing in the quote. When we were thinking there about the sunrise from on high visiting us. Because we're told it was God's work to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit on us to shine on us. He, he's always been a God of chesed, tender mercy, right? He's always been a God of covenant faithfulness. He still will be through this next stretch of darkness. And if we understand that there are new things that we must be ready for, 
it's good for us to know that they will be like the things there have been before because it's the same God who is working in them and in us. Uh, we're called to do the same things. We're called to be faithful to what we believe. We're called to be faithful to count on what we've believed. We're counted on to expect from God the new thing that he will do. And then as we understand that that will be always in keeping with his covenant loyalty. Remember what we saw, his covenant loyalty in the morning and his faithfulness in the evening. Song for a weary soul. Everything changed for Zacharias. And I think he gives us the gift of the Benedictus, which is simply a song for a weary soul that's good for us as well.